Hi everyone, good morning. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima. And today I'm talking with Tove Kinoka and Jane Best. Uh, Hi. Both, both, both of you are in morning. Tokyo, right? Uh, Yokohama for me. Uh, Yokohama. Jane, are you in Tokyo? I am just, yes. I'm on the very edge of Tokyo. You have that beautiful green background behind yep. you. Yeah. Yes, it's the Akikawa Valley behind me. Wow. And today we're talking a kind of a catch-up discussion because, Jane, you were on the program last year talking about Refugees International Japan. And today it's the same organization, but under a new name, Refugee Empowerment International. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes, we changed the name last September um, to give a clearer message um, about what we do. And I think it's working. Hi, thanks for joining. I'm JJ Walsh. I'm based in Hiroshima, Japan. I work as a sustainability-focused consultant for businesses and the travel industry here. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com and you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. Great. Yeah, I love the name and I love the word empowerment in general. And it's so close to what you're actually doing with the groups trying to empower local groups in local areas to help refugees based on kind of a case-by-case -case approach. Is that right? Yes, it is. I mean, you know, each community has got their skills and talents. And the important thing for sustainability, which is what we're all talking about, is to use those, um, you know, not bring in outsiders who say this is what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, um, but to work out what they can do within their communities with the resources available. And it's, it's yeah. The word empowerment is is absolutely perfect. Yeah, we're gonna talk about some of the great case studies of projects that you've been active in. I'm sure coronavirus time was a a big challenge. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, before we dive into the case studies and stuff, Tova, do you want to talk a little bit about your role with RAJ? Oh, sorry, REI. <laughs> REI. Don't worry, we're we're still struggling as well. It keeps slipping out as RIJ occasionally, but uh, we're getting there. Um, so I, I mean, I, I have my own company as a day job, um, but uh, Jane and I met through the BCCJ, the um, British Chamber of Commerce in Japan probably about four or five years ago now, Jane. Um, it seems like yeah, a long time ago. The same ago. age as Hugo. Yes, that's right. So probably about five years ago. Um, Hugo's my son. Um, and uh, got talking. I you know, heard from her about the work that um, REI or then RIJ was doing um, and was really impressed. And, and we work in the company on sustainability. And so one thing I really, really liked about REI's work is that it's it's really looking at the long term it's not a, a quick fix here and now um, which is very very necessary for a lot of refugees but um, after that um, you know it, it's really looking long term and, and helping people as Jane was saying empowering them to use their own skills so it fitted very nicely with you know our values our thinking um, so we began to talk about how we could work together um, and we'll, we'll talk more about um, some of the things we do together later. But uh, basically my role now um, 
is as part of the management committee. So we're separate from the board and the management committee is um, four of us, including Jane and myself. Um, and really we are there to, to support Jane, I suppose, with the, the everyday um, things going on at REI. So looking at, um, okay, what is our sort of strategy coming up for the year ahead? What are we doing events-wise? Who do we want to be talking to? Um, what about interns? How are we um, working with them or volunteers? That kind of thing. So I'm, we meet a couple of times a month um, to talk through things like that, but then also working together on events and stuff as well. Thank you. Um, I think one of the confusing things, um, which uh, you guys addressed so beautifully in one of your YouTube videos recently for REI, is talking about what is the difference between refugees and asylum seekers and migrants immigration? Um, can one of you kind of briefly explain the differences? Jane, I'll leave that to you. Um, yes. One of the interns prepared that video and she did a really good job on it. Um, asylum seekers, well, let me start from uh, what first, second, third country. So first country will be what we call IDPs. And these are internally displaced people. So IDPs and refugees are in a similar position. They've been forced to flee violence, conflict, persecution, member of the wrong ethnic groups or whatever. And so... IDPs are still within their country because often the borders are um, closed down to them. And refugees have fled into a second country. Now, asylum seekers, they, they are refugees, but they're seeking asylum. And they fled to a third or a fourth country where they, which they see as very safe. <laughs> Not always safe, but it, they see it as safe. Um, and they are seeking residence there. So they have applied for asylum. So um, that is, oh, the migrants, yes, yeah, sorry. Now, migrants are not refugees. Migrants are people who have pretty well chosen to flee to another country in search of better opportunities. So they have not fled, they've not been forced out. And that's the difference. And it, they get very confused the, in the media and everywhere else which is a great shame because it puts a bad light on refugees. Um, I don't know, people lump the, the, the two things together and there's, a, there's different reasons and, and very, very different reasons. And refugees, IDPs, refugees, asylum seekers are all um, worthy of protection, international protection, and legally they are um, should be guaranteed protection. Yeah. So those are the main differences. Now we, um, as an organisation, support IDPs and refugees. So we are supporting groups who are staying near home within their culture, within their group, and hoping to return home. Obviously, that can often take many decades before they do. Um, but that is where our support is, and returnees, um, supporting people as they return home. And your main role um, at REI, would you say, is supporting local groups who are already established and supporting the refugees in terms of their local needs. So it's quite a variety of different kinds of work that your organization is supporting around the world. Is that right? Yes, it is variety. Um, 
It is. The groups are mostly actually comprised of refugees themselves um, with assistance from um, host community um, partners in, in the organizations. So a couple of them are, are completely run by refugees within the camp. Yeah. One of the talks I was listening to um, that you were talking about, I think with the Karen ethnic group in um, who had fled from Myanmar because of persecution, but even within their own group, they were struggling with uh, equal rights as women. So inside their own group, there were such specific problems that they were trying to overcome through education and training and health management. So uh, kind of providing uh, support for locals who understand those unique sets of problems it just makes so much sense. I, I really, from doing the research today and talking to you last year, it really made me think, like sustainability, there is no blanket this way will work for everybody kind of approach. Is is that right? Have I... Yes. I mean, the word sustainability is all things to all people, isn't it? Or you, if you talk about a refugee situation, what on earth is sustainable there? You know, it's, it's, we hope it's temporary. Um, but so in, in terms of sustainability, building up the skills that they can always have and um, developing those talents. But the, the Karen women, yeah, they... They're, they're a tough group. They, they really are. I mean, gender equality in Myanmar all over is pretty poor. Um, Karen state particularly. And so, yes, they uh, they, they battle that, but they, they're not going to give up. They're, they're amazing. They're very brave. And I, I think there's an idea, especially in <clears throat> Japan, and I think one of the people in your group uh, on these calls brought it up, why doesn't Japan just take a bunch of these people and put them to work? Because we need workers here. I mean, I it seems too simplistic, but it, it does seem perfect on many levels. But I think you commented that there's so many problems with accepting refugees in Japan. Uh, you're working mostly focused abroad, but of course, you must have connections to the Japan situation as well. Is that right? Um we don't really, not very much. There are some great groups working in, in Japan to support people who are seeking asylum here. And uh, yes, it's a battle. It's a, we would say we're not political, so. Yeah. Well, I, I know from UNITAR and other international aid organizations in Japan as well, they kind of have a policy that they don't actively engage with the local situation. Is that just so it makes it easier in terms of politics? What's the reason for that? Well, I when I came into this group, it was supporting projects overseas. And um, I, as a foreigner, would not have much sway if I was advocating for refugees in Japan. So, I mean, it's a practical um, situation. And um, our mission statement is, is set up to support people overseas. Uh, we are aware of what goes on in Japan and um, I've done a few presentations along with um, a couple of the organizations so that we show the balance between the international situation and what's going on in Japan. I mean, I will say that Japan should certainly accept more refugees. It would be to their benefit. Yeah. Um, but no, we, we are not. Um, and the way that our registration is set up now, we uh, we wouldn't be able to without changing our registration. 
Now I'm showing on screen, and I think last year you mentioned there's 70 million uh, refugees worldwide, and on the infographic that your interns made, it says 80 million. So the latest data is about 80 million people have been displaced um, and are refugees worldwide. Is that right? Yes. It's a shocking figure. It is really shocking. And uh, it's, it's only a figure, too. You know, I'm sure there are more, to be honest. It's what, you know, it can be documented. So, yeah. And it, most of the refugees worldwide, is that from unstable governments, would you say? Mm, it's a huge mixture of issues. Um, it could be local land rights. It could be rebel groups um, objecting to the governments. It may not be the government themselves that are forcing um, the, the outflow. It's it's very mixed, but it's um, rights. Usually it's all to do with rights. Mm. And I think we're also starting to, to see um, climate refugees as well. Um, and I know that this is something that the UN is anticipating will, will become more of an issue moving forward as well. Definitely. And uh, even with unstable governments, even my own country in America, and, uh, you know, if that election had been different this year, we might have seen refugees leaving America. I mean, it's it's not impossible to look back on the history in Germany and seeing how leadership makes a big difference. Looking at Myanmar right now and the situation for so many ethnic groups being completely incapable of staying because of safety. And then, like Tova, you said about climate and climate emergencies, people losing their access to daily life. They just cannot stay in that area. And the thing that I keep coming back to is we could all be refugees at any yes. time. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely. it can happen to anyone. And that's mm -hmm. so important to remember and think about when you're thinking, why should I help these people? Why don't they just stay in their own country? Why don't they go back to their own country? Why don't they fix their own government? It's it, really, we, we could be refugees at any time. So we want to take care of other people because it might happen to us and we would hope other people would take care of us, right? Is that the basic idea? I think so. Well, I think stronger communities all over the world are going to benefit us all. And to see people um, developing their groups and um, improving the workforce, the local workforce, um, and considerations for the environment are all part of this, because in several of the projects we support, there is an environmental aspect to it. So. I think it's in all our interest to see a much more stable um, community, to see more stable communities around the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't turn your back on it. We're all in the world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, one of the things Jane always says is that nobody chooses to be a refugee. Um, and I, I think that's such a, a simple but powerful statement that, you know, it's very easy, I think, like you said, um, JJ, to look at, um, you know, you see images on the news and you think, oh, you know, that's tough, but really, did they have to leave? Um, and it's very easy sat in our comfortable lives to make that judgment. Um, but then when you start to, to hear the individual stories, and I think that's something that REI does really well, sort of bringing these individual stories to people and saying, look, you know, th this could be any of us. These were people who had 
perfectly normal functioning lives until something that was completely outside their control happened. Um, and they had no choice but to leave. Um, so I think a lot of people don't really look at it from that angle. Um, so as REI, that's something we really want to, to get out there. Yeah. And you have so many really positive case studies of organizations you've been funding and they have great personal stories. We're going to dive into that in a second. I really like um, one of your recent campaigns about Tadaima and Okaidi and making a connection with Japanese culture because of course your fundraising in Japan is the whole, one of the reasons you're here is to do fundraising projects. Uh, can you talk about that project a little bit, Tadaima and Okaidi? Well, Tadaima, that was also another an intern. I love working with these interns. They come in with these new ideas that you know we're missing. Um, she just saw this this connection between you know welcoming somebody home in Japan, and that's what everyone wants to do. Really, you know, we all like to go home. Well, the majority of us like to go home, and you know that sort of feeling of warmth and the return home. And she made this great um, video. Uh, which actually she made it a few years ago so we need to we, we revise reissue it every now and again because it's such a lovely video yeah I think that in in terms of fundraising in Japan or consulting in Japan or doing anything in Japan if you can connect to the local concepts and the local culture and tap into how they would feel on uh, in their culture and then you can tap into empathy and mm. acceptance of this might be happening and how would I feel, even though it's other countries. Is that the concept? I, I think that's an interesting point because Japan is all about community, isn't it? Um, you know, even within the metropolis of Tokyo, you've got the individual communities and, and they will look out for each other. And so I think that sense of community is an important comparison, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned interns. So can you talk a little bit about the staff that you have? Is it only you as a director and everybody else is volunteer staff or how does it work? Um, yes, there's myself and um, a part-time administration assistant. Thank goodness, because all the Japanese registration is a tough call. Um, I admire her patience. Um, and everyone else is an intern or volunteer. Well, what's the difference between an intern and a volunteer? But um, we thrive on interns. Um, we have far too many applications, which is, um, I suppose, a very positive thing. Um, and it, it's quite a challenge to manage them sometimes because, you know, enthusiasm and you know, um, letting the enthusiasm roam. But what I love is that we're able to provide the opportunities for them to learn and to extend themselves. So if they get involved with and find new programs to do for us, to the benefit of us and for their learning, it's great. There's one intern just finished recently and we were talking about, you know, what she'd gained from it. And she said she just gained so much confidence because, you know, we encourage them to talk to each other, to argue with each other, to discuss the things. And I thought, wow, I mean, yeah, aren't we lucky to be able to be offering that? at the same time as providing opportunities overseas. So, um, yeah, and the interns are far more up to date with some of the stuff than I am. <laughs> so. It's great. So it's as an intern, it's great experience for them, 
um, while they're going through education or in between jobs or trying to train for jobs. Um, it's great experience and training, and then they can apply what they learn through your organization to do their own business or at a different company. Is that right? Yes, it also gives them, I noticed that several of them, it either convinces them that they don't want to go down the nonprofit route, which is, I think, all, all again. But the majority of them say they always want to stay involved in some way in, in it, whatever they think. But it often helps them clarify what they want to do in the future. Um, there was something else I was going to say, and that's gone out of my head. Never mind. It'll come <laughs> back to me in a minute. I noticed that um, Meti... Yes, Yaziki, he had joined on one of your trips to Africa, it looks like. Um, yep. So one of the roles of your organization is to go and kind of interact on location, kind of in terms of transparency and accountability. Um, so sometimes uh, you or other staff will go abroad and meet with the local organizations which must have been very difficult in the last two years since coronavirus. How have you transitioned during this time to keep that sense of transparency, accountability, and uh, something you can relay back to the people who are donating in Japan? Well, we're funding, funding the same groups. Uh, so we're continuing to focus on, on five projects that we know uh, make a good impact, uh, very reliable. Um, and we've talked to them all online, as everybody's doing now. So yeah. all of them, in fact, we have connected with all of them. And we're about to have a meeting with the team in Nairobi next week, with Mete as well. Wow. I think one of the issues we talked about last year, Jane, when you were thinking about this, was the technology issue like would they be able to connect by computer or telephone how has that been has been okay yes it, yes most of them have well all of them have the ability to connect That's awesome. uh, one group has to come out of the camp they have a access to a, a small center outside of the camp they have to get a day pass um, because there's no electricity in their camp um, but yeah we can connect with them all um, Talking about yeah. Mete, by the way, he's another member of the management team with Tova. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you have twice a month meetings, like you said, and, and kind of uh, talk about logistics or strategy in terms of fundraising and marketing and that, that kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So should we introduce events since we just manage, mentioned the management? <laughs> <laughs> so you have some events coming up. Uh, event next week, I believe. You want to introduce that? Yes. So next week um, on the 16th, um, which is Sunday, I believe, um, we've got the Beer Bluff, the Great Beer Bluff. So this is an event that um, REI's run a few times in the past, and it's always been um, in person, of course, up until recently. Um, and it's just a, a really fun event. You know, it was a great beer, great cause, great fun. Um, and this year we are, well, next week, we're going to do it online for the first time. So we're working with um, Hyapa Brews, um, a craft beer brewery based in um, Aichi. And they are very generously sending out um, a set of special beers to all the participants. Um, and then we're going to, to live stream. It'll actually be a hybrid event. Um, 
conditions permitting. So some people will be there, um, others, most of us will be um, participating online. Um, and the idea is that um, you have three bluffers um, and they will talk about, so everybody will have their, their beers at home that the Hepa Brews has sent out. Um, and the bluffers will um, one by one tell us a story about these beers and about um, whatever secret ingredient is in this beer to make it particularly special. Um, and of the three bluffers, one will be telling the truth and the other two are completely bluffing. Um, but they all come across as, as very you know, sincere. So your task is to, to taste this beer, listen to those stories and try to work out who you think is telling the truth. Um, and then sort of you, you put in your answers onto the next bit, repeat and so on. And then everybody's scores are totted up at the end to see who's actually um, guessed the secret ingredients correctly. Um, so it's, it's a really fun event. And we've done different um, versions, whiskey and wine versions of this as well in the past. But this is the first uh, online one. And the idea is that each person who registers um, makes a donation to REI. And of course, that money goes then to support the, the projects that we're, we're working with. Um, so that's one event coming up. Jane, anything to add on that one? No, it's interesting to see how it goes online. Yes, yeah. It, it, I'm looking forward people to it. have fun, whatever. Yeah. I think so. I think and, so. And in a way, it's it's better in some ways because it's not just an in-person event only in right. Tokyo. Anybody around Japan who can mm -hmm. have the beer shipped to them can join in online. Um, in yeah, some ways, yeah. coronavirus pushing everything online has kind of opened up your audience a little bit, I would imagine. I think so. It's given us new opportunities. Um, you know, at first it was very, very difficult last year when everything, um, you know, all the events that we, we had planned um, had to be cancelled. Um, you know, obviously that was really hard. Um, and there are certain things that just wouldn't work as well online. Um, but it does give you scope to, to think differently and include many more people. So um, we're really looking forward to seeing how this goes. And actually, um, a couple of months ago now, we had the uh, food challenge, um, the cooking challenge, sorry. So we worked with um, a wonderful hotel in Tokyo, uh, the Tirana, Tokyo Edition Turanamon hotel um who very generously uh, gave us a space to to live stream from and um we worked with their chef jürgen there um and the participants we also had another uh, a range of partners including ali shan and farm canning and, and a wonderful tofu company as well and they all donated food items which we then sent a sort of mystery package of food to the participants um, and then people had to create dishes only from the ingredients that they had there um, and then we asked the the chef uh, from the hotel to to um, judge those in different categories like you know, zero waste or creativity in presentation and so on um, and it's great we had people participating from all over uh, Japan but we also had um, some people overseas who were saying look you know this is really fun I love the idea of this and okay we couldn't send them the, the package of food but we could say look these are the after people have been sent their packages here um, we were able to say these are the ingredients so if you want to take part see if you can get these and just do it for fun so it was a great way to engage beyond our, our usual sort of audience um and it i think it worked really well we're talking about doing more of those as well jane right 
Yeah, I, it was really well. I'm amazing what people produced. Yeah. Um, and put their all into it. Um, and yes, uh, we're probably going to do it three, three times a year, three or four times a year. That's great. Yeah. It's it's very innovative, but I think COVID has kind of encouraged innovation in this way for fundraising, especially. I'm looking at uh, the graph from your report from 2020, and it looks like most of the funding for REI comes from individuals. Would that be through events like this? Uh, yes, to an extent. Um, we don't have a huge amount of the corporate support is generally in kind, um, very generous. Um, but obviously, in the last year, which you're looking at, um, that, that we were working that out and so on. Um, I have to say, in the coming, in the the current financial year, we've seen quite an improvement on that, um, considering we haven't had the events. Um, so this is interesting to see the way things are developing, and we're very pleased with it. That's great, and it looks like schools are also a funding source. Uh, how do the schools donate? Do they do um, their own campaigns or events? Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, one school in particular I'll pick out who've been actually supporting us for more than 10 years now. It's a, a Japanese school in northeast Tokyo called Junten. Um, they organize a sponsored run every year. And um, it came about from a teacher who was a running fanatic and he had been working in UK at a Japanese school in UK and so he learned about sponsored runs so he introduced that and um, in fact this year I'm really impressed this year they couldn't have the full run because of uh, the COVID restrictions so they had a um, I'm not even sure what they did they had some kind of exercise event but they still raised 200,000 yen brilliant and for a school donation I think that's very impressive that's wonderful and do you do you feel like uh, through the school events, especially, that there is a raised awareness of the refugee problem or empathy for people um, that you support through the organization through these events? Yes, um, schools. Yes, I think there's. Um, I'm not quite sure where some of the energy comes from, but. Um, it might be an individual who's heard about our work or um, a teacher within the school who's keen to, to um, uh, pursue it. Um, but we just recently had a um, contact from K International School and they have a group of students, probably about 20 students, who are so inspired and so enthusiastic. They're building up a whole scheme of art galleries and workshops. And these are the, I think they're seventh graders. Um, was better on school grades than I am. <laughs> um, but I'm, in, I'm just impressed that the, the schools are to make it, or the students who are making contact. And I think coming back to your, your question about you know awareness, JJ, um, Jane, you were saying the other day you did a, a presentation at a school, sort of the, the REI presentation about you know who we are and what you do. And you, you said some of the students had sort of interesting comments after that and that you changed their thinking. That re you reminded me, Tova. That was what I was going to say earlier, and I said I've forgotten my train of thought. Um, uh, when I do the presentation to introduce um, REI and our work, um, people just come back and say, "Wow, you've really impressed us. I hadn't thought about this way of giving effective 
support and um, the interns as well many of whom are studying um, international relations and so on they'll say we all we learn through our studies you know about international aid and support and so on and you presented a much more simple straightforward more impactful way of, of providing that support and and these students yes Toba's right that, that I was talking to the other day obviously younger than university students which are the interns all were commented on this has changed their approach to what they're going to do in their awareness building and the fact that to understand that you don't have to go to a difficult place to provide support that you can provide that support much more effectively from afar yeah and i wonder yeah. if the coronavirus itself because it's a global problem that everybody around the world is struggling through i wonder if that in cell itself can provide more empathy for people and you think well i'm not the only one going through this while well, everybody else around the world is going through this and it just makes everyone feel a little bit more connected to world problems maybe have you seen that it's possible i mean we've got to thank it got to thank it for something haven't we <laughs> Yes, I think, no, I think so. Excuse my uh, cynical. <laughs> I think so. But that's yeah. that's amazing to hear that you've actually had an uptick in fundraising over this past fiscal year. So that's very exciting. And an uptick in um, interest. Um, Tova and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, the name change might be mm. part of that as well. It's a little yeah. bit easier to to work out how it works or what you are as an organization maybe yeah that, yeah. that was the idea behind it really sort of we, we thought refugees international japan you always had to explain no we're not helping refugees in japan we're, we're working with people outside there was always that sort of confusion over what we actually do but the empowerment bit i mean you said earlier you know you like that word i think it, it's that sums up exactly what rei does so i think having that new name that you know people can just immediately understand oh okay that that's what it's about um has really made a difference yeah and tova did a great brainstorm on rei there's a lot you could do with it right so rei you've got re-imagine reinvent reinvigorate we started thinking of all the, these words that start with rei um and yeah it just sort of came out i think that's where the cooking challenge came from um, originally from from that idea, um, just sort of reimagining what you can do with with very basic ingredients, um, and uh, so yes, that that's hopefully sparked some ideas for the year ahead as well. And, and the other the so other sorry, with JJ. The sustainability too, right? Yeah. Yes. And the other online event that we've done and are about to do again is the walking challenge. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, so you can set up the route on, on this um, virtual challenge site. Um, we're going to do one in June from Kigali. The, the previous one we did was um, Damascus to uh, Beirut. And the one we're going to do in June, around World Refugee Day, by the way, which is the 20th of June, um, is from Kigali in Rwanda to Goma on the edge of the DRC. And uh, the interns, Tova, have taken your theme and they've called it Reimagine Rwanda. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. I oh, love that. And the, the I have to say, I mean, thinking of Corona connections as well, the, the walking challenge last year um, that I did, I, I felt that 
that was so helpful for me, like looking at the number of steps daily on my phone and things, you know, usually when we're all stuck at home, we don't go anywhere anywhere. You know, nowadays it, it's, you know, you realize how little you move. So having that challenge was really helpful. So, okay, I need to get out and do, do my distance for the day. Um, and the app um, that Jane was referring to, sort of when you set that up um, and it's completely interactive. So, you can see where other people are on the route. You can actually have a look in um, the sort of satellite mode and see what it looks like where you are on that route in Rwanda, for example, or last year going through um, Syria and things like this. So it was, it, it's really engaging and fun, um, but it actually, it, it's got a great health benefit as well because it gets you off your backside, away from your screen <laughs> and actually outside doing a bit of a walk um, each day. That seems like a great idea to, in interact with technology and personal health and personally doing the walk but engaging with a location around the world that needs help and you're raising funds for i love that yeah. idea um do you yeah. have that information on your facebook page or website we've just um finished uh, we um <laughs> ilaria has just finished the the website and she's going to post it on facebook next week great we'll look forward to that and uh, if you if we put the link and I'll try to Thank you. send it around as well. Um, I think we mentioned before and let's talk a little bit more in depth about the, the Karen um, support group that you're supporting. I think are they in Thailand in a refugee camp and supporting the women in the Karen ethnicity? Can you explain that project a little bit? Well, the Karen Women's Organization is uh, a, 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 an organization of women from Karen. Um, they are based um, on the border of Thailand and Myanmar, and they have centers in most of the camps. Like there's um, seven main camps um, and a few smaller camps uh, on the Thai-Myanmar border. And so the Karen women are based in all those camps, as well as working within Karen state. They have just written to us to say they're suspending all activities in Karen state. Um, as uh, you, I'm sure, have read that uh, the unrest in Karen state is heightened in the last um, two months, but especially in the last month. And a lot of people, a lot of refugees have fled to the border. Um, there's contention as to whether they're allowed into Thailand, but generally speaking, um, they are being allowed to stay there for the moment. Some have gone back. Um, there was just some quite serious atrocities going on. It, 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 Myanmar is so complicated. It really is complicated. It's not one country, um, never really was. Um, and so the uh, the problems inside um, the country are, they're, they're diverse, they're all over the country, they're not just one problem. Um, Karen State is particularly troubled at the moment, so uh, the women can't, they told us stories about how they uh, will reach out to displaced communities um, to, to reach the, the women there, and how they might have to wait beside a road for a couple of days until they're sure that the army post, the, the soldiers are not going to catch them. And the, the brave stories, the stories they've told us of their bravery are amazing, but none of them are going in there at the moment. Yeah. So 
uh, when it is possible for them to go in and support these groups, um, it sounds like in the video conference that you had with them, that one of their main things that they are doing is, is really it's basic level like food security, uh, educating the mothers how to care for their babies, um, a lot of lack of empowerment of women to make their own choices in their lives because of the system of their culture. So there's a lot of hurdles there. It's not, I guess, all the organizations you work with, there's no typical refugee situation. Every organization has a different set of hurdles. Is that right? Yes, yes. I mean, it is. Each ethnic group has a different um, approach and attitude. Um, the, the project that we specifically fund is called the Baby Kit Project. So they provide new mothers with a kit containing items to care for their, their child. But we're not funding a handout. The important thing in the baby kit is a health message. So the community workers take the health message to them. And if the women can't read, they'll obviously go through training with them. Um, but it is teaching them um, and guiding them in all things to do with bringing up their child, so from breast milk to nutrition um, to um, just general care, like clipping nails and things like that, just quite simple things. And it encourages the women a lot. Um, it's quite surprising what misunderstandings are passed down from generation to generation, especially on the nutrition side. So it was very interesting to read those stories. How, And um, many, some of the women have never used soap before. They use a kind of fruit which they lather up in the river. Um, and in many of the villages, there's no access for that kind of thing. But we always look, we're always pleased that there's a knock-on effect. And one of the knock-on effects that the... Um, the Karen women community workers have said this in it builds trust in the community they're going in with um, health training and the guidance for the mums and so they begin to trust them because you, you can imagine living in those situations that they don't know who to trust mm. and they don't know who's going to come and cause disruption in their lives <clears throat> so they um, they build the trust with these women and then they talk about other aspects of their lives and the things that are concerning them. So for the Karen women community workers, they're able to ascertain what else is required in those communities. So good good knock on yeah. um, effect, the ripple effect of, of support so that you're supporting maybe, for example, 100 beneficiaries, but you in the end will reach 500. Yeah. And, and I think you just... Sorry. Really, yeah, yeah. Really interesting about the nutrition, mm. and that in the call, the local group that you're supporting was saying about breastfeeding. A lot of women were under the impression powdered milk was better than breast milk, and they were trying to encourage them back to breast milk. And then, like you said, some of the advice from the elders was actually giving them diarrhea and making their children sick. Yep. So really fundamental, like food security kind of training and health education is really practical and you could see real health benefits right away. Amazing. Sorry, Tova, what were you saying? Yeah, I was just going to say that the um, knock-on effects Jane was talking about there and the fact that, you know, when they're having these, you know, the conversation would start around health um, because that's, you know, the purpose of them going in there. Um, but then it 
provides that safe space as the trust builds for the, the women to be able to talk about um, other challenges they have. And I think that, again, is sort of is really embedded in REI's approach in that, you know, we we don't go into these projects and say, OK, well, here's what you need to do. We'll tell you as the, the outside experts, you know, what you need and and what you should be doing. It's very much about going in and saying, OK, well, sort of how can we help you? Tell us what your issues are, what support would help you to to move forward um, and to, to get back on your feet and you know, what is it that uh, we can do to help you with that? And I think that's, again, something that sets REI's work apart from maybe some of the bigger MPOs that do fantastic work. Um, but there's often that sort of assumption that they know what's best. Um, and uh, I love the fact that REI sort of really works in partnership with the local people, the people there on the ground who, and actually listen to what they need and then work to support that yeah i'll bring in the word sustainable at that point. yeah <laughs> it's a good word but, but that's i mean you mentioned international organizations and i think that's the image right like for mm -hmm. big aid organizations they have their own stuff they do their own training and then they go around the world and they give their advice but i would assume the same advice from wherever their headquarters are. Whereas what you're doing is going and working with the organizations already there on the ground from the local area who really understand the local needs much better than any outsider could do just swooping in and trying to help, right? The, the big organizations have what I I loosely call a macro role. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're very much there for emergency um, and protection issues and so on. And they have the resources to handle emergencies um, and, you know, provide what's needed and ensure that the individuals get the protection that they, they should have. Um, and we're looking very much at the micro community yeah. aspects. I thought uh, another great example of an organization you're working with is the D.A.R.E. group. In, and they're working with addiction issues and drug addiction and recovery. And they're using local methods. They're not using uh, chemicals or other medicines. Mm. And a really innovative, very interesting group. Can you tell us very, about that? Very culturally appropriate is, is the, the term that we use for that. It is. Um, and they have a slight advantage in being able to organize residential programs because you know people haven't necessarily got jobs to go back to and, and they're all in the camp, which I think is part of the success of, of the work they do. Um, they create this great sort of family atmosphere. When we visit, we're all impressed at how, you know, it's like a family home, but rather a large one. Um, and yes, it's acupuncture, uh, local herbs, water immersion which is a very interesting um uh, thing that they've been doing for the last few years where you you know, you, you sit a person in a tub of cold water which you can do in a warm place like thailand um and uh yeah it's um they also address the social side of it um so you know they they'll have community workers who will go to the families who will work with them in the community and a, again ripple effect of this huge number of the people who've been through the treatment become community workers to spread awareness to talk to families to encourage people to go for the treatment um, and they therefore now have a role in the community whereas before they were lost and hopeless and vulnerable yeah 
I thought the organizer's uh, explanation of what is addiction <clears throat> and why so many people become addicted was so powerful and so key to the reason they need to be there. Um, talking about how basically anyone who's not a baby or elderly is using in some way and it just helps them function because their situation is so miserable and so the people they've helped they've really helped but she was talking about it just being like a wave that people just keep coming like how do you address that kind of situation they're doing what they can and it's great that you're you're funding them but what would be the bigger fix such oh. a huge question. <laughs> yeah, the drug trade, the drug trade in that area is 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 big business. Um, so obviously, from that side, it needs huge uh, inter interference. Um, but yeah, yeah, major. But that's that's something you must see in all the situations that you help support. Is is the bigger issue is just too much. You can't even go there. But what can you do on the ground? How can you support them in what they're trying to do, even on that micro level? Is that right? Yeah, let's find the positives. Let's look for the, the benefits and the impact. Yeah. yeah. And they're great. We've got loads of great stories, lots of good news stories. That's great. <laughs> and the water immersion thing, that was really interesting. She, yes. she was talking about it in such an innovative way, right? Like she noticed one of the guys going through the therapy, he would just on his own go sit in a pond. And so they started using that approach and applying it to other people. It's like that kind of case by case thinking and oh, what's working? Oh, let's try that. Like it's the people who are running it are so innovative as well, doing such a great job. So it's kind of meditation, isn't it? I suppose it's what, what you find your way to do. And that's what he did. He went and sat in the pond. <laughs> But as organizers, to be on the lookout for solutions mm -hmm. yeah. is, yeah. is, I mean, in my experience, is very rare for any kind of even aid organizations to be that flexible and able to take solutions as they see them and to be able to see them in the first place. So that's that's really amazing. You and sum that, that up really well. Yeah, yeah, you did. And I think really that's like we were saying before about that sort of um the the flexibility you have actually is a very small grassroots organization versus the bigger ones where you know they're they're kind of bound sometimes by well this is the way we do it and we have to follow these guidelines um you know for good reasons in in many cases but the the joy of being such a small organization and working with these um very small local groups is that there are no set rules for things like that it's like okay well that looks like it's working let's let's try it why not um, and it, it's wonderful that sort of flexible uh, mindset. Um, and I think there's so much we can learn from, you know, what we're seeing in those projects and what the, the refugees themselves are doing. There's a huge amount we can learn from that. Yeah, well said, Tova. Yeah. Which is so refreshing after so many years in Japan where the thing you hear over and over is but we've never done it like that before <laughs> so right. we're no we're not comfortable with that you know so when you work with organizations that are just work like on their feet just changing and trying things and wow yeah innovation yeah. it's amazing <laughs> and in my 60s i love the flexibility and i love the change still so yes <laughs> that's great 
Uh, you mentioned one more project uh, that's up and coming in Nairobi, Kenya. Can you talk about that? Uh, that's a project we've funded a couple of times um, and we've just got funds again for it. So um, as I think I mentioned, I'm talking to them next week. Uh, Meta and I are talking to them next week. Um, uh, this is an entrepreneurial program and um, they are. this is for refugees who are living in the city. Um, they're not they're not asylum seekers. They are refugees who fled over the border into Kenya and um, have for some reason not um, ended up in a camp, but in the city. It's tough. You know, they're vulnerable to exploitation uh, for people looking for cheap workers and so on. So this program is really good. It um, trains people in how to either set up the business or look for work and how to do it legally. So the legal rights part of the program is very important. Um, there may be skills training. Um, there's language training as well because um, they come from quite a few different uh, language backgrounds, don't necessarily speak English or Swahili, um, and uh, are then guided into uh, finding work or, or developing their own companies, uh, their own businesses. And um, some great success stories from there um, of people who've increased their income. And, you know, it's to the benefit of the, the community because they're, if they're doing their own businesses, they're using local um, trade and products and and they're paying their their taxes their rates and whatever is in the in the communities they're in and um yeah a great empowerment program some awesome. of those stories um we we've used as well and um, sort of created uh workshops for companies around those so i mean some of the examples that we've seen coming out of the nairobi um, project in the past, uh, like Busy Manor, I hope yeah. I'm saying his name correctly, who um, started his own business sort of making um, mandazi, which are small sort of local uh, street food snacks. And then as he built it up, he was able to employ other people as well. So he's actually generating jobs um, for people as well. And we, we looked at these stories and said, well, what is it that enables someone like him who's lost everything? He's had to flee to a strange country. Um, you know, where he knows no one, knows nothing of the local culture, and yet he's able to, with some support, yes, but to, to pick himself up um, and create a new life and then help others as a, you know, in the, um, while he's doing that. And so we, we looked at it as a way to, um, to understand resilience and the, the mindset and the, the sort of process and behaviors um, associated with that. And so we've got um, workshops now that we can do with, with corporates on resilience and also on uh, more recently on empowerment as well, understanding how, you know, what empowerment actually is and, and how you can empower yourself and others. So um, that's another way that we can A, raise funds um, by doing these workshops in corporates um, and then the, the donation goes to support the projects. But also it's just a really helpful way, I think, for us to, to get value for that donation that we're making you know we can learn something that we can apply then to our everyday lives and i think particularly as we're going through this covid situation things like um resilience um are incredibly important and that you know flexibility of of mindset and ability to adapt to a very uncertain unfamiliar situation and, um, and independence and self-reliance yeah, yeah, this, this comes up over and over <clears throat> in all of your projects is the people don't want a handout they, no. and they need work uh i think in the karen 
community, they were talking about if only one person from every family could get work of some yeah. kind, it would be a huge lift to the entire community. And this goes back to sustainability, of course. You have yeah. to have people planet profits in balance and some companies are only thinking about profits and that's not gonna work. <laughs> And some people only thinking about people or only thinking about planet and that's not going to work. We need yeah. all three, right? Absolutely. And we look at empowerment through four pillars. This is actually something that the management team came up with. I don't think it was anything to do with me. I was just picking out some ideas <laughs> from it. But empowerment through job creation, empowerment through education, empowerment through community and environment and empowerment through legal rights. So you can put that into all of those most of those programs in some way we can highlight that so that will fit into um tova's workshop themes when working with uh, corporates yeah absolutely so much of, of what we can draw the learning from these stories is you know directly applicable to what we're experiencing every day in our own lives so it's very powerful stuff that's great and then Tova, through your work as well, this is very informative, right? And you can mm -hmm. give examples of innovation from even the most basic level in these organizations Absolutely. around the world. Yeah. And maybe even on the corporate level, you might apply this kind of thinking or something. Exactly, exactly. Like you say, it's not always the easiest thing here to get people thinking outside the box. So I think this is a really interesting and different way to do that. I mean, yes, they're building awareness and you know empathy for refugees as well, but they're also sort of, turning that lens back on their own life and going, well, actually, you know, perhaps we don't have to do things this way. We could do things a little differently. And I think that's that's a, a great learning. Yeah. And Jane, when you visit uh, schools and you talk about the work of REI, um, what is your main point? What is your main focus? How do you sum things up? Do you give individual stories um, like we did today? Or do you give more general, like how do you fit in to the world kind of empathy internationally? Or what's what's your target when you talk to? All of those probably. Of <laughs> but, um, but no, I would use certainly use um, a couple of individual stories always, you know, so that we don't see this as a big, big sort of amorphous maths. It's, you know, it's people. Um, but I also highlight to schools that for them to get involved in this, what they can learn or what skills they can develop outside of their general studies. So, you know, if they want to do, um, I'd love people to do manga. We'd love to tell these <laughs> stories through manga. So people who like to do graphics, people who like to make t-shirts, people who want to develop apps, you know. So for students, um, if they've got a particular hobby, that they can also uh, use that to the benefit of uh, working with us and supporting REI. So, yes, it is looking at the general worldwide um, issue, but coming down to what individuals are doing within those um, projects. So very much, I think, probably to emphasize the individual contribution. And do you find that it has some connection to their understanding of diversity and inclusion even in Japan, just by seeing these stories of people who don't look like them uh, in other countries and what they're doing in a positive way. And, oh, I like that too. Or having that connection to people that look different. I think it does. Um, I could just remember a couple of comments and one young man said, gosh, he wants to be an architect. That's what I want to be. Hmm. 
you know, what's the difference? So um, I think that does that does go yeah. home, drive home. So. Yeah, I think um, when I was talking to Nasreen Azimi, who works in UNITAR for many years, that's what she was talking about with conflict resolution. <clears throat> you try to find points of similarity, right? Mm. And, yep. And similar stories, and oh, I like that too. Oh, I'm thinking that yeah. too, you know. And it, and then you can transcend that huge gap between mm. your color skin and their color skin, or your religion and their religion, or non-religion, right? Yeah. So you said yeah. at the at the moment you have five projects around the world. I don't think we've mentioned them all. Do you want to mention the others? Um, yes. Uh, there's another one on the Thai Myanmar border for the Kareni. The Kareni are a different group. They're from uh, the st uh, adjacent state to the Karen. That is training on human rights, leadership, care of the environment, uh, and so on. Um, that's for basically school leavers. And um, the fifth one is in Lebanon, um, a kindergarten for Syrian children. Um, big Lebanon quarter of the population is a refugee they they're really overwhelmed um, so getting into the school system is quite tough so the kindergarten provides obviously opportunity for early learning which is always good um, and addresses uh, helps some of the children address their psychosocial issues um, that they've that they have from the trauma um, giving parents space, but also prepares the children for the elementary school system and hopefully to get in. 97% so far get into the, the school system. And also the teachers are refugees. Wow. And one of the interesting things that I heard you mention was none of your projects that you're supporting have had any COVID outbreaks, that you've you've been able to somehow support them in a very safe way during the coronavirus. That's awesome. Yeah, we haven't heard of any. Um, the camps were closed on on the Taimian border. They were closed to anybody coming in and out um, for some time. And I think there's a, a degree of movement now. Um, Lebanon is probably the worst hit. Um, they've had very severe COVID problems. So the, the children have been studying in a rotor system at home and so smaller classes. Um, they haven't mentioned, uh, and I'm sure they would have done if there'd been any cases. Nairobi, uh, we haven't been funding um, a project there in the last uh, year, so um, we d we therefore don't know of anyone who's who's suffered. But um, when I last talked to the um, Nairobi team that we we partner with, they hadn't any reported cases. Yeah. Well, that's the end of our time. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights and all your wonderful and very important work supporting all these organizations around the world. And I, I really feel that we're more connected during COVID, that we see ourselves more as a, a human race across the planet instead of country by country, region by region. Yeah. So hopefully that makes the kind of work that you're doing a little bit easier for people to identify with and connect with. So thank you so much. Keep up the great work. And thank you for featuring it. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. Yes. And do join our events. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely put the links below and Brilliant. I will share it once I get the links from you for the upcoming ones in May, the uh, beer bluff, bluff beer and the walking challenge. That's and right. it sounds like June is a big month for um, immigrants and refugees. Is that right? 
It is World Refugee Day, yes. Right. Okay, great. We'll definitely share that. Thank you so much for joining. Thank, Thank you, everybody, for watching. And uh, we didn't have any comments or questions. Sorry if I missed any. I didn't see any. Um, if you have any below, make sure you write them and we'll try to reply anytime, even if it's not during the live. Uh, tomorrow is Saturday in Japan, but we have a very special guest joining us from the UK. She's a translator, Nadine Willems, and she translated a book of poetry from the Ainu in Hokkaido. So that's going to be really interesting. Please join us 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. Have a great day.